Welcome to Rogue Chemist. I'm Jenna Flogeris, former lab rat turned digital nomad. Rogue Chemist chronicles my misadventures around the world, including the people I've met and the lessons I've learned along the way. In October 2019, I found myself trekking in the mountains of northern Pakistan with an unlikely travel companion. Meet Mawish. Like, actually, it's the first time in my life that I've ever seen snow falling, and it's so much snow that I'm done with it. Oh, I don't want it anymore. How did Mawish, a local from Lahore who had never even laid eyes on falling snow before, and me, a snow-shoveling Canadian, end up on this unexpected excursion together? Well, there's a bit of a backstory. I was inspired to visit Pakistan by an old friend from high school who's half Pakistani and had since gotten married and settled in Lahore. Despite keeping in touch online, we hadn't actually seen each other in the flesh since we were maybe 18. FYI, that was a very long time ago. So I figured it was high time for a grand reunion on a different continent. Constrained by my corporate job at the time, I had precisely 17 days to visit my friend and see the country. I had initially thought to book a tour through Hunza, a valley in the north of the country famed for its glorious fall colors, with a female-run Pakistani tour group. I'm generally not a fan of tour groups, but I thought a tour would maximize my time in the country, and I felt good about supporting a local business. But through a spontaneous turn of events, I found myself presented with a fortuitous alternative. A few days before my departure, I came across a post in a Facebook group for women traveling in Pakistan that seemed too good to be true. Mawish had announced her intent to trek to Mashabroom Base Camp in the Karakoram Mountains. She would be leaving by bus from Lahore the morning after I arrived and was seeking a travel companion. I had zero doubt that this timely opportunity to travel with a local would be both interesting and rewarding, so I didn't hesitate to reach out immediately. I wasn't deterred by the fact that this trip would be a chunk of concentrated commuting. By concentrated, I mean nearly 10 hours of flight time from Frankfurt to Lahore, almost immediately followed by a continuous 30-hour drive to Skardu, the gateway to the Karakoram in northern Pakistan. After overnighting in Skardu, another five-hour drive would bring us to the starting point of the trek, the tiny mountain village of Hushe, towards Mashabroom. Rising 7,821 meters above sea level, it's the ninth highest peak in Pakistan, Since it was the first mountain within the Karakoram range to be mapped, it's also known as K1. Mawish and I would be trekking to base camp at about 4,500 meters, which we aimed to do in a two-day round-trip trek from Hushe. In Mawish's words, It's going to be a long, 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 long journey. Entering the airport arrival hall in Lahore at 5 a.m., I was met with a sea of multicolored salwar kameez, a traditional Pakistani outfit, and not-so-discreet gazes from curious onlookers. Once my friend Maida and her family appeared outside to whisk me away and snap me out of my red-eyed trance, we headed directly to her home. Despite having our hands full with two toddlers and the fact that we hadn't even seen each other in years, she welcomed me as a guest without a moment's hesitation. I was delighted to meet my charismatic friend again after all this time. We interacted like we did in high school, as if no time had passed, and reflected on our very different lives in the present. I met Mawish at the bus terminal the next morning. With her dark aviator sunglasses, nose ring, and well-worn in backpack, not to mention her willingness to go on a mountain expedition with a total stranger, 
I had a feeling we'd be on the same wavelength. I soon found out that my hunch was right. Our mutual excitement for the trip ahead made the time pass easily, and despite not sleeping for the entire 30-hour bus ride, fueled our conversation for hours. During those hours, I not only learned about Mawish, who was a handful of years younger than me, but from her. I was super impressed with her knowledge of Pakistani culture, history, geography, and Islam, and really appreciated the personal insights she shared with me. It was also evident that we shared the same independent spirit and both thrived on adventure, so I knew we were off to a good start. Mawish told me stories about her own solo exploration of her country, and as an unaccompanied woman traveling outside her home province of Punjab, she had always been met with kindness in the regions she visited. I had known beforehand that Pakistanis are renowned for their hospitality and generosity, but my knowledge came exclusively from Western travel bloggers, which is obviously biased. From what I gathered based on Mawish's travel experiences, though, the signature hospitality is extended to anyone perceived as a guest, Pakistani national or otherwise. Every so often, a soft cooing noise interrupted our thoughts, and Mawish and I looked at each other, puzzled. We later discovered that these quiet calls for help belonged to two caged pigeons, which, rather disturbingly, ceased to coo when they were removed from the bus 30 hours later. The regular meal and chai stops also helped to break up the hours and preserve our sanity as we headed further north. The Karakoram Highway technically starts from Islamabad and runs all the way to China via the Kunjarab Pass, the world's highest border crossing. With its winding roads through mesmerizing landscapes, think turquoise lakes and green forests, which become striking shades of gold, red, and orange in the fall, lucky for us, and of course, endless snow-capped mountains, Northern Pakistan is incredible to behold, and is especially dreamy for motorcyclists and cyclists with a sense of adventure. As we ventured into the province of Gilgit-Baltistan and passed the intersection of the three mountain ranges that traverse the north, the Himalayas, Karakoram, and Hindu Kush, the drive became more and more beautiful, and it was about to get even more interesting. We veered off the highway and onto a rocky cliffside road that was under construction, causing intermittent traffic holdups. The road was really only wide enough for one vehicle at most points along the way, and we passed oncoming trucks with only an inch to spare. Mawish and I tried not to look over the cliff's edge when our bus was forced to the non-existent outer lane. As we drove along the narrow passage, something in particular caught my eye. The motorcyclist driving ahead of us had a German flag sticker on one of his storage cases. I wasn't too surprised by this sight, thinking to myself, of course there's a German up here referring to the fact that Germans tend to be avid world travelers. I was curious about this stranger's story. A prolonged traffic disruption, when most of the drivers and passengers got out of their vehicles to stretch their legs and observe the rock blasting happening down the road, presented the perfect opportunity to satisfy my curiosity. And so I walked over and struck up a conversation with the German, who was parked a few vehicles ahead of our bus. Within just a few minutes, we discovered that not only did we live on the same side of Germany, although in different cities, but the next-door neighbors of his parents just so happened to be my coworkers. No joke. Nick had been traveling solo for the past four months on a road trip from Germany, which had taken him throughout the Middle East to Pakistan. He would then cross India to eventually wind up in Nepal. Quite the impressive journey, to say the least not to mention the fact that he received his motorcycle license only a few days before starting his trip. 
I was excited for him, and also a bit jealous. Navigating the open road at your own pace, taking spontaneous detours on a whim, and exposing yourself to the potential risks that come with driving on two wheels significantly enhances the elements of freedom, danger, and adventure. When I turned around, I noticed that a flash mob of intrigued Pakistani men had enveloped us, intently taking in this exchange between two tall foreigners. Since Nick was on the same route to Skardu, we agreed to touch base again later. The construction cleared, and everyone returned to their vehicles just as the sun was setting. After finally stepping off the bus late into the night, I started to shiver. Skardu's frigid temperatures at this time of year were in sharp contrast to the heat of Lahore. Mawash's friend Ashraf, the owner of the hotel we'd be overnighting in, soon arrived to pick us up from the bus station and deliver us to the much-anticipated comfort of our room. I noticed that Ashraf wore a big, blingy gemstone ring, alluding to the wealth of minerals and semi-precious stones mined in the Karakoram, including aquamarine, rubies, and emeralds. High-altitude mining, as you can imagine, is a very dangerous operation, but it's a common livelihood for the men in Skardu and the surrounding area. It turned out that the hotel didn't offer much relief from the cold because the electricity was out when we arrived, but at least we could indulge in hot food, milky chai tea, and a bucket of boiled water for a shower. As soon as I pried myself away from that empty bucket, I didn't waste any time bundling up and pulling the blankets over my head. After breakfast the next morning, Mawish and I prepared to leave the hotel for Hushe, a village nestled in the mountains at 3,000 meters that would be the starting point for our trek. A few minutes before we were about to set off on the five-hour drive by private car, which we hired in favor of another bus ride, Ashraf knocked on our room door, announcing, The German is here! We had told Ashraf earlier about our encounter with Nick on the road, but we didn't expect Nick to show up on our doorstep. Pleasantly surprised by his spontaneous reappearance, we learned that he was also heading towards Houchet, offering yet another opportunity to cross paths on our respective adventures. The air was crisp, but the sun was shining and warmed us up as soon as we stepped outside the hotel. We drove along the Indus River, set before a perfect blue sky and the imposing Karakoram, and on narrow roads through several small villages dodging multiple goats, sheep, cows, and children playing, crossed several rickety wooden bridges while holding our breaths, and were welcomed in Houchet by a group of excited villagers, many of them cute, rosy-cheeked little kids, who crowded around the car, eager to catch a glimpse of the visitors. The people of Houchet rely on subsistence farming and otherwise accommodate and assist trekkers, acting as porters, cooks, and guides on expeditions. Even with the steady stream of tourists, mainly during the summer season, it was now off-season, it was apparent that these villagers had only the most basic of amenities and no luxuries. Kids ran around in the cold with runny noses and dirt-smeared, slightly tattered clothing, but all of them were laughing and playing. Mawish and I later wished we had brought chocolate and sweets to share, which are rare and savored treats in these parts. Both kids and adults alike knew these words in English likely from other foreigners who had stayed in the village and offered goodies, and some of them shyly asked us if we had any on hand. Mawish doled out squares of a German chocolate bar I had given her, but one small crowd of children quickly wiped away our very limited supply. Finally, the morning after our long journey from Lahore, it was go time. 
We ate a breakfast of eggs, roti, and chai with Hassan and Nick and quickly gathered our gear for the trek. Nick wouldn't be joining us. He was getting ready for the next leg of his adventure, so we wished each other well and went our separate ways. After several hours of walking mostly along a flat dirt path, I reached the first camp along with our two porters, Daniel and Ishmael, who had left Touche after us and quickly caught up despite carrying the bulk of our gear, including cooking supplies and kerosene on their backs. They started a small fire to take care of the first order of business on a trekking break, chai. Hot, sweet, milky tea is one of the few comforts in the cold of the mountains, and I always welcomed it with half-frozen fingers. It started to lightly snow as we rested here. With the sunlight filtering through the falling flakes, it was a beautiful, serene scene, and I was beyond content. Mawish, who had started to feel the effects of the altitude, had been walking slowly since our departure from Hushe, and Hassan accompanied her at her own pace. They joined us at the camp while Ishmael, Daniel, and I were already sipping from our steaming cups of chai, and I was glad to see that Mawish also had a smile on her face despite feeling sick. Another few hours up the mountain led us through several rocky, steep sections, but it was still relatively easy trekking. Again, I went ahead with the porters while Mawish and Hassan took their time. We passed scattered signs of fall, which diminished into rocky terrain as we climbed higher and higher in altitude, eventually reaching a cold, damp, and windy plain for our second chai and snack break. Although it was possible to camp at this location overnight, given the harsh conditions, we opted to go a bit higher, to lower base camp. The second location was drier, more sheltered from the cold wind, and housed a stone hut. These huts are normally meant for sheltering livestock, but we weren't exactly picky about our makeshift digs, eager to escape the plummeting temperature as evening approached. Daniel and Ishmael efficiently set up camp while I warmed my hands and feet by the fire they built outside, and sat rather comfortably on a scrap piece of yak hide, a throne fit for a mountain queen. Once Mawish and Hassan joined us, it was late afternoon by this point, we loitered around the fire, with chai of course, until the dal and rice were ready, congregating inside the hut under blankets. Hassan proposed that Mawish and I sleep in the hut and the porters take the tent. It was obviously the less luxurious option for them, but it was already cold and would be below freezing overnight, so I didn't complain about this impromptu sleeping arrangement. Although I bundled myself up in a sleeping bag under a few thick blankets, wearing all my outerwear, I just couldn't sleep that night. The hard ground no doubt contributed to my sleeplessness, but I was also buzzing with adrenaline, excited to be up here in the vast remoteness, isolated from reality below. I ruminated on Mashabroom and the epic 8,000ers, that is, the mountains that loom above 8,000 meters, wondering how the hell mountaineers summit these peaks in much harsher conditions than our current, comparatively cozy situation, and if I could eventually do it, too, while not dying in the process. The trio of us set out for base camp at 6 a.m. the next morning. Hassan, the vision of a snow wizard with his wooden walking stick, Mawish, determined despite being sick, and me, sleep-deprived but gung-ho. Once we reached base camp, we planned to turn around more or less immediately, so Daniel and Ishmael would stay behind and hold down the fort at lower base camp. We would have to survive without Chai for a few hours. It had snowed the night before and was still snowing when we walked away from the comfort of our little hut as the sun started to rise. At first, we gradually ascended over loose rocks barely dusted in snow, making me think we'd be in for this type of terrain the entire way to base camp. 
But no, that would be too predictable. Almost suddenly, the scene changed dramatically. The cold, biting wind picked up force and the snow deepened, at times reaching our knees. As we trudged forward, I could make out no perceptible route ahead of us, and the mounds of loose, freshly fallen snow forced us to slow down significantly. I admit that a moment of doubt ran through my mind at this point. I had been trekking at even higher altitude before, but the conditions were never this rough at any point of that trek. Here we were, outside the normal trekking season and approaching winter, hence the abundant snow instead of the greener landscape you'd likely encounter in the summertime at this altitude. As my hands and feet started to freeze, even through my wool mittens and solid hiking boots, I was worried about frostbite. Curse my poor circulation. Meanwhile, Mawish's boots weren't even waterproof, so she was also starting to go numb. Lucky for us, Hassan, a snow wizard among men, well, women in this case, saved the day. He confidently navigated our way through the thick blanket of snow, shuttling us down slippery hills one by one and intermittently warming our hands and feet with his bare hands. Only wizardry can explain how the hell his hands were warm despite not wearing gloves on the entire trek. Determined to meet our goal, we slogged onwards, skirting around a glacier and finally reaching a flat open stretch that Hassan proudly declared his base camp, a two-hour trek from our overnight camp. What did Mawish think? I actually thought that I was going to die, and I still think so. After basking in the glory of our efforts for a few minutes, it was time to go back. But fueled by our success, we plowed through the snow more easily this time and returned to lower base camp quickly. We lingered at the campsite for a hot meal before starting back down the hill towards Huche. My adrenaline had run out, and I was exhausted. Mawash and I remained good friends after I left Pakistan, pledging to reunite to tackle K2 base camp next time on a future trekking expedition together. We haven't done it yet, but we fully intend to when the time is right. It's serendipitous encounters like those I had with Mawash and Nick that, on the one hand, make me realize that the world is indeed a small place, verifying the old cliché. But on the other hand, I'm left wondering if they really only are sheer coincidences, the result of pure chance, randomness, the entropy of the universe. I'd like to think it's that one. I think solo travel leaves you more open to experiences like these. While it might seem like a gamble, buddying up for an excursion with a virtual stranger or someone you've met along the way accelerates the bonding process, for better or worse. If the experience is new to both people, you're both outside your comfort zones. It's a vulnerable space where you can't help but reveal your true selves. This space is where meaningful, lasting friendships form. Until K2 Mawish. Thanks for listening, guys. The story is also published on my travel blog, roguechemistblog.com. If you want to find out what I'm up to at the moment, on Instagram, I'm roguechemist underscore blog, and on Facebook, Rochemist.